Welcome to this episode of Mystics and Skeptics. Now here's your host, Sybil. Hello, fellow humans. Hope you and yours are well, wherever you are. Today we have Rabbi Dr. Juan Marcos Bejarano Gutierrez. Rabbi Gutierrez is a graduate of the University of Texas. He has a Bachelor of Science degree in Electrical Engineering. He received a Master of Arts degree in Judaic Studies. He completed his doctoral studies at the Spertus Institute of Jewish Learning and Leadership in Chicago. Rabbi Gutierrez received rabbinic ordination in 2011 from Yeshivat Mislat Yesharim. He is a prolific author of best-selling books and numerous articles on Judaism. Shalom, Rabbi. Welcome to Mystics and Skeptics. Shalom, Sybil. Thank you so much for having me on the program. So, Rabbi, um, you know better than I do. Moses, uh, although Abraham is the father of the Abrahamic religions, uh, Moses is probably one of, if not the most important prophet in Judaism. He's the liberator, the lawgiver. And I am very excited to uh, talk about him with you and um, in his journey with God. So, uh, Rabbi, I'm going to... hand it over to you. Could you give us some context and a framework on how we can approach uh, Moses in the Judaic perspective? Absolutely. Um, I think, as you said, Moses is one of the most fascinating individuals. He's certainly central to the Jewish faith. Um, in many ways, I want the Bible, uh, what we the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And I think what's amazing about the these books is that they do reveal the humanity of these individuals who had this unique encounter. We would say Hashem, uh, the name, you know, God. Um, they have this encounter, but they're very fallible individuals. And um, it's it's sort of like uh, you read all the dirty laundry, you know, you see all the dirt, you know, the things that they uh, fail in, uh, family issues, uh, you know, inter-sibling rivalry, all the things that happen. Um, and you still see that Hashem or God has this interaction with his creation. And I think that you see this in Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 sons. Um, it's an amazing story because, you know, ideally, you know, you, you read about a religious figure, you think that all of the flaws would be uh, hidden or erased. And the Torah doesn't do that. It just lays it all out. And in, in many ways, I think it makes it accessible for people who have a desire to have an encounter with with Hashem, that, you know, we're flawed, um, and our patriarchs, these great uh, uh, men, and, and also women of faith, were very real, and um, I think that's something beautiful that, that Judaism embraces. Um, I wanted to start off with sort of providing, uh, like, just a very basic overview. Um, the, one of the basic tenets of, of Judaism, or classical Judaism, is that God revealed, of course, the Torah at, at Sinai, uh, something we call Matan Torah, the giving of the Torah, um, and most uh, individuals who are not Jewish, they know about the, the written law, as they would call it, the written Torah. But we also believe that Moses received uh, an oral Torah, something that was given, you know, was spoken by, by God. And it was the, the explanations and the commentary, if you will, on how to keep the, the written Torah. So we have a, a written tradition and we have an oral tradition. And, and the two sort of go hand in hand. We wouldn't be able to do most of what we do today, uh, Jewishly speaking, um, if we didn't have both. So the, the, the written Torah is like the constitution, and then the oral tradition is almost like the legislate, legislative process, you know, where we actually enact the things that are written down. Um, and as part of this, we have a, a large body of tradition that are 
you could sort of call them rabbinic lore, uh, stories, uh, legends, uh, homiletical interpretations of the scripture. Um, because many times what we find in the written text is we find very limited, you know, sketches about these key events that happen in people's lives. Um, but the, the rabbinic lore, the midrashim, as we call them, they provide us with a lot of details that we don't find in the text itself. Now, sometimes a text will hint at something, and there might be a Hebrew word, there might be uh, a text that we find in one chapter, and then we find something in another book, and then the rabbis will come and say, oh, you know, this is sort of the missing link. Um, you know, there, there's, there's a lot of the discussion whether we take these literally or not, but they're intended to sort of fill in the gaps and give us uh, like a fuller picture of the experiences of these very unique individuals. And what we find in many ways is that you see, again, the humanity of these individuals and the struggles that they have of faith, of, of love, of suffering. Um, and so they're very beautiful. And so when I, when I talk about uh, uh, Moses or Moshe Rabbeinu, as we would say, Moses our rabbi, Moses our teacher, um, I'll, I'll make reference to the, to, to the Midrash, for example, or I might make uh, reference to the Talmud or something like that. And I know that, you know, your listeners are probably at different uh, levels of understanding of traditional Judaism, but I just wanted to give sort of a background in terms of how we, we look at that. So. No, I appreciate it. There's a couple of questions that I had that I think you'll address that are in the Midrash versus in the Pentateuch, you know, and so I just wanted to get clarification on that. So thank you, Rabbi, very much for that uh, preface. So Rabbi, um, could you describe for listeners, uh, Moses's origins his, uh, and where he was born, uh, what the context, parentage, and how he came into the Egyptian royal family. Yes, yeah, so it's interesting. We have, um, most people know the book of Exodus. Uh, in Hebrew, we refer to it as uh, Sefer Shemot. Shemot, uh, the word Shemot is names, because the first chapter begins with a list of names of the 12 sons of Israel, the 12 sons of Jacob and they entered into the land of Egypt, right? There's a famine that takes place. Uh, Joseph has been elevated to a position of prominence as the viceroy of the Egyptian kingdom. Uh, his, his brothers, his father, their extended family, they come into Egypt, they're treated well, um, and everything you know, is generally well during the lifetime of uh, Joseph. Uh, but then something happens radically in the history of the disagreement about this uh, in uh, the commentators, uh, among the commentators or uh, in the, uh, the Midrash, Exodus Rabbah, e even in the Talmud itself, there's discussions about whether this was a new king or whether this was the same king. And some commentators will say, well, it was, a, it was the same king, but he was threatened by his advisors that if he did not address what they consider to be the, the, the Israelite problem, um, that they would, you know, denounce him, they would have a coup, so to speak. Um, and then eventually he sort of agrees to this, he comes back to power, and then he takes a different turn, you know, with respect to the Israelites that are living uh, in the land of Goshen. Uh, other rabbis say, no, it's it's a different king, um, and he wants to address what he considers to be the, the Israelite threat. Whatever the case, there's a radical shift that happens in uh, Egyptian dealings with, uh, with Israelites. Um, and it's interesting because in the first chapter, we have the names of the sons of Israel mentioned. In the second chapter, once the enslavement has already started, uh, none of the names of the people that are key to our story are mentioned. For example, it says there was a certain man from the tribe of Levi who took a certain woman from the tribe of Levi, and they have a certain son uh, who has a certain sister. 
and there was a certain Pharaoh and he has a certain daughter, the, the names are not mentioned. And it's very interesting because one of the rabbis um, that mentioned this uh, noted that it's almost like the people have lost their sense of identity because they have been dehumanized, they have been enslaved. And so the idea of having a specific name is sort of lost. It's not until we proceed with the story that the names sort of reappear. Um, and it's interesting because when we look at the story of, of uh, Moses's father, Amram and his uh, uh, mother, uh, Yochabed or Joshabed, as, as we typically say in English, uh, it's an interesting story because uh, the Pharaoh had decreed that uh, males would be would be killed, of course, that were, were born. Um, and, in, and in the Midrash, uh, the story tells us that Amram was a very righteous individual. And as in a marriage, um, you know, Jewish law has a lot of interesting perspectives. There is a, uh, a commandment, if you will, a responsibility by a husband to fulfill the marital needs of his wife. I mean, that's part of the, of the deal, if you will, <laughs> in marriage. And so what he does, knowing that this union will, will produce a child that may be slaughtered, he decides to divorce his wife, according to the tradition, because he doesn't want to, you know, you know procreate. Um, and because he's a leading figure in the tradition, many other Israelites follow suit. And then his daughter, Miriam, who, of course, is the, the, the sister of Moses, um, and she's considered to be, to be a prophetess in, in her own right. She says, your decree is even harsher than the decree of Pharaoh, because Pharaoh decreed that the, the, the males would, would be killed. But you, by, you know, uh, divorcing yourself, separating yourself from, from the wives, have essentially decreed that all children will not be born, and that includes the females. So uh, Pharaoh's decree is for this world, and by not creating these souls, if you will, they, they will not have a place in the world to come, sort of that's sort of the thinking. So he listens to her words, and he, uh, he remarries his wife. And that's why the rabbis say that uh, when it says that he took uh, this woman, it, it's the, the, the word that is used is the word that we, one of the words that we use for uh, betrothal. He, he took her, he acquired her as his wife. They, they undergo sort of a remarriage ceremony. And then, of course, they know that the, the possibility is that they will give birth to a son. And of course, it's, it's Moshe, Moshe Rabbeinu. Um, and his birth is, is something that is, of course, full of legend and lore. Uh, when he was born, we have different sources in, in the Exodus Rabbah, for example, and, and one of the midrash that I, uh, midrashim that I talked about, that the, the whole house is filled with light. Uh, it's something that is, you know, characteristic of this special birth of this child. Um, there are different sources. Um, some sources say that he was born circumcised, and we have a tradition that other great patriarchs were born circumcised, um, and that's a sign of, of perfection, that there's already something special about them. They have a special mission. We have other sources that say, no, he was circumcised on the eighth day. Uh, but you can see sort of this idea. There's something unique about this child. Um, and eventually, of course, the, the threat of Pharaoh's edict is, is quite clear. So um, his mother, Yochaved, decides to you know, send him down the river you know, in, in, in the basket. She crafts something. Um, and of course, her daughter, uh, Miriam, according to the tradition, says that she had prophesied that he would be this great individual follows, you know, down, uh, you know, the river. And uh, she said that she pondered these things because the baby, of course, is going to be found by their, uh, Pharaoh's daughter. Um, and one of the reasons that Miriam ponders is because she questions, you know, was my, my 
prophetic announcement correct? You know, will he die? Will he be sentenced to death? Will he live? Um, and of course, in this particular case, uh, Pharaoh's daughter uh, accepts the child. She draws him from the water. She calls him Moshe, which is an Egyptian name. Um, and it's interesting because the, the Midrash tells us that the her, her uh, Pharaoh's, atten uh, Pharaoh's daughter's attendants, they want to protest. They don't want her to take a child, which is quite clear that this child is one of the Hebrews, one of the Israelites. Um, and uh, God sends an angel, I think it's uh, Gabriel, Gabriel, to sort of push them aside, and she takes him. And from the very beginning, Moses is very unique. He doesn't want to breastfeed from the Egyptians. You know, the, the Pharaoh's daughter has uh, nursemaids. He doesn't want to accept that. And, and so eventually, this is where in, in, the, in the biblical text, Miriam, uh, Miriam says, oh, you know, I can find a, a Hebrew nursemaid that can serve the purpose. And of course, that's that reconnection back to the family. Um, and one of the things that, you know, we had talked about beforehand is how did he know about his, his roots, you know, who he was. And so we have both, um, you know, Pharaoh's daughter imparting something to him about his past. But of course, he has the nurturing and the education that his father, his mother, and, and his sister and brother will give to him. So there's sort of a connection there. He lives in two worlds. And Moses's life, in many ways, is reflective of, I think, of the dilemma of Jews throughout the centuries and throughout millennia. We sort of live in two worlds. You know, we don't, most of us don't live in the land of Israel. We live in the West, or we might live in Europe or, you know, different countries. So we've always been caught between two identities. Um, you know, the identity that is dominant in the world that we live in, and then our religious convictions and our, of course, our ethnic, cultural, linguistic connections. And there's often this kind of pull between these two. <clears throat> That's one of the re reasons that many Jews today often assimilate into contemporary culture, because they feel that draw, they feel that pull from the dominant, uh, you know, religious traditions, culture, whatever it is. And so Moses, in many ways, reflects these two worlds, even in his own time. Um, Moses is uh, said to have been a beautiful child. He has a certain charisma, even as a baby. Um, he's beautiful. He's handsome. Uh, people like to kiss him. You know, they like to pick him up. Uh, and even Pharaoh himself, who has condemned other Israelites to die, has a certain attraction to him. He'll carry him. And according to the Midrash, he will, uh, Moses will take the crown of Pharaoh and he'll put it on his own head. And uh, this bothers um, the advisors of Pharaoh. Now, there's a tradition that says that of all people, Jethro, uh, Balaam, or Bilam, and uh, Job were some of the advisors of Pharaoh. Um, and you know there are different traditions for that, but some of the advisors say this is a this is a sign. This is uh, this is not good. Um, you know you should kill him because if a child is able to perceive what is valuable, the a thr uh, the throne, the the uh, crown, this is a sign, a portent of what will happen in the future. So I think it's Jethro who says let's have a test. You know because it's it's probably just a child. He doesn't know what he's doing. And so what they do, and this explains why he has a speech impediment. Um, in, in rabbinic uh, tradition, they set the crown before him, which is, of course, of gold, um, and they set coal before him. And according to the tradition, Moses is going to grab the gold. He recognizes what is valuable, but an angel comes down and pushes his hand to the coal, and then he puts it in his mouth. And he, he, uh, he's saved, but there's an impediment there, right? He, he, he burns his, his tongue, um, and so he's temporarily saved, but this element 
continues with him, right? Because he brings this up. He brings this up when when Hashem, when God reveals Himself at at the mountain. Um, you know, I'm not of of uh, you know eloquent speech. You know, he has a he's not sure of himself. And in many ways, it's interesting because I think in some sense, if this was the case, let's assume it was true. Um, it almost adds to Moses's humility. Uh, he is a prince of Egypt. He is said to have been, uh, a, you know, trained in the arts of war. We have other sources that say he conquered uh, Ethiopia. Um, you know, he's a great military man. He's learned in the sciences of the Egyptians. He knows the wisdom of Egypt. He knows all these things. Um, but there's a certain humility and a certain kindness that is part of his character. Um, and when, when the, uh, according to the Midrash and other sources, what he saw was that Pharaoh had um, changed the natural order of things. So, you know, in most societies, we, we assume that women are baking or, you know, something like a, those kind of type of uh, uh, activities. And the man would be taking sort of the, the, the harder, um, you know, uh, work. And so what Pharaoh does is he, he switches the roles. And part of this is to, to uh, dehumanize them to demoralize them, and you have somebody who's naturally, you know, generally women are considered to be weaker physically, they're having to take on these very difficult tasks, and the men are, of course, seeing their, their wives, their daughters undertake that, and what Moses does is he sort of sets it back in order. He says, no, 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 you know, we should have, um, you know, the men do the, what's appropriate for them, women, etc., and then he even helps them in their suffering, and then, according to um, the Midrash, he goes to Pharaoh and says, you know, these are your slaves, um, if you work them seven days a week, they're going to die. You know, they need to have a day of rest. And so even unknowingly, he institutes the Shabbat, even before it's, it's decreed at, at the Sinai. Of course, it's, it's mentioned in the book of Genesis. And so he has a concern and a love for the suffering of his people, but of people in general. And it's an amazing uh, reflection because you see this, this portrait of Moses continue, right, throughout his uh time in the desert, he is always concerned for the welfare of, of the people of Israel. Thank you so much for that, Rabbi. I mean, uh, you're right. I mean, there were early signs of his humility, right? And I think even in the Pentateuch, it, it, there's a verse about his meekness and, you know, um, just and being concerned with the welfare of his people, which we'll talk about a little later, where he kind of saved half, half of the Israel, Israelites when God was not very happy with them. Um, in terms of um, if we can move forward a bit, uh, he's in his youth now, Moses, and um, there's an incident where he sees a Hebrew slave being beaten uh, ferociously by an Egyptian, and Moses intervenes. Can you describe the circumstances around that? Yeah, according to the Midrash, um, the, of course, the Egyptians had overseers. Um, they also had uh, Jewish overseers that would oversee a certain number of Israelites or, or Israelite overseers. And according to one story, um, the reason that this happens is because one of the Egyptian overseers has uh, taken a liking to a particular Israelite, Israelite woman, and he violates her. Um, and his, the husband is, becomes aware of this, and the overseer wants to kill the, uh, the Israelite uh, uh, husband. And so he puts a lot of work on him. He begins to beat him, and, and Moses you know, is enraged at the injustice of, of what is happening. And so he sacrifices his position and he intervenes. Now, whether that's true or not, I think it's very plausible, right? You could see that you live in a society in which 
you have a, a cast of individuals that are downtrodden, they're enslaved, and you know uh, uh, someone who is over them would easily take advantage of, of people that don't have any protection or rights. And Moses is almost compelled to do this. Um, and as a consequence, of course, it's, this, this creates a problem because um, saving the life of, of an Israelite slave um, is, is going to be at the, at the cost of an Egyptian is, is you know, going to be considered a, a capital offense or something of that nature. So it, it sort of initiates this different period in his life where he becomes a fugitive. And there's different questions about whether he goes to Ethiopia. You know, there's different lore and rabbinic perspectives. Does he go to Midian directly? Whatever the case, it, it initiates a different time in his life. And now he's gone from, you know, this uh, uh, prince of Egypt, very elevated circumstances, and now he's a fugitive. Um, and of course, it, it gives him a sense of the suffering of the people of Israel that he had seen, but now he sort of has to experience it in, in his own way. Yeah, and there's a question about, you know, how he... Um when he saw the Israelite husband getting beaten that, you know, he was looking around to make sure nobody was witnessing, you know, what he does next, which is, you know, he kills the Egyptian and he buries him. Right. Of course, there is a witness, which is the Israelite husband who he saved and it becomes public knowledge. And like you said, then he lives in exile. Does that draw any question to his motives? Was it an emotional response or was it a response of you know, moral justice, like you mentioned, you know, there is some question about that. I think that, uh, I think his concern is for the consequences of the actions, but I don't think that he has any, I don't think he exhibits any regret. Um, I think he believes it's the correct thing to do, the moral thing to do to defend this individual. Um, and I think that he simply, it's like any human being, right? He wants to make sure that he's not going to be uh, maybe stopped or, or incarcerated or whatever the, the, the punishment might be, but um, I think that he is willing to act even to his own detriment, right? Because he could have easily just walked away and, uh, you know, there are many slaves. Um, and I think it just testifies to his character about willing to, to intercede at whatever cost. And of course, we see that later, as you mentioned, when uh, Hashem is angry because the people have committed the sin of the golden calf, and Moses is saying, you know, if, if you're going to wipe them out, you got to wipe me out too. And it's this kind of bold conversation that he has with Hashem. And he has the ability that we say the chutzpah to, you know, to stay, you know, to talk to God and say, you know, this is not acceptable. And, and then in many ways, you, you have sort of a, a connection to Abraham. You know, when, when God is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and some of the other areas, Abraham has the audacity to, to question. And of course, God says, will I do this without telling my friend Abraham? There's this unique connection that he has. And of course, Moses has this uniqueness because the Torah tells us that he, that God speaks to him face to face. It's a very unique relationship. And um, it's almost like Moses is holding God back. You know, he's holding Hashem back and, uh, and Hashem listens. You know, it, we, we have an understanding of Hashem in a very human way which of course the rabbis will say is, is uh, it's an anthropomorphism. It's not really literal, it's metaphorical, but this is the way that we can understand, right? That um, Moses is interceding on behalf of the people of Israel, even to the point that he's willing to lose his own, you know, destiny or his own place, you know, and that's an amazing statement. And that's a great way of looking at it. I mean, yeah. Um, so, oh, scholars and i'd like your opinions you know at this time during this incident you know we'll move along but you know he, they say he was around 40 years old i mean but i think in judea some rabbis think he was 20 but either or 
he goes into exile um, for 40 years. Is that, is there consensus in that? Uh, generally, I mean, again, we, we mentioned the issue of Ethiopia. You know, some people say that after this incident, he goes to Ethiopia um, and then he spends some time there. And then when he finally goes to um, Midian, it's, it's when he's older. But I think 40 is, you know, sometimes generally, I, I think the predominant view is that, you know, he goes to, to uh, Midian about 40 years old and then he spends time there. And what's interesting is that his reception there is considered differently by different sources. On the one hand, uh, some sources say that he's received well by Jethro, who is, is a priest of Midian, or at least uh, was a priest, because there's a different, there are different stories that say that he was on his own spiritual quest and that he came to the recognition that the idols that he had worshipped were, uh, were not true. And so he's very open to this idea of, of, of you know, looking for God. Um, and others say that, no, he, because he had served as uh, an advisor to Pharaoh, that he actually imprisons Moses for a number of years. And um, the reason that uh, Moses marries Zipporah, the daughter of Jethro, is because during this time of, of uh, his enslavement, very similar to the time of, of Joseph, she is providing him with food. She's sort of his comfort. And then she tells her father, listen, you know, let's look in the dungeon and see if he's still alive. And then, of course, to Jethro's amazement, because he doesn't know that Zipporah has been helping him, uh, he's alive. And then he has a change of heart. And, of course, he gives Zipporah to, to Moses as his wife. So interesting story, just sort of, you know, trying to explain these events that we don't really know a lot about. Um, and I think in many ways, uh, emphasizing the importance of Zipporah as, as Moses' wife and of, of Jethro as well, where an individual who was a pagan has this process where he eventually... Of course, we'll see this um, later in, in, in the book of Exodus, where the parasha, the section of the Torah that deals with the giving of the Torah, is named Parasha Yitro. It's Jethro. It's named after him. So we have a Torah. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, Torah portion with, with uh, the giving of the Ten Commandments, the Aser Hadibrot, is met, met, excuse me, uh, named after Jethro who was not a, not a Jew, not an Israelite. And in many ways, it, it, I think it signifies the universality of the Torah's message that God desires all men, all women to know about the one true God. Common uh, lore says that Moses was around 80 years old when he had his first encounter with God. And I wonder, you know, I, before we get into the burning bush <laughs> story, you know, I wonder what, whether um, God, why it took so long, right? We're talking about, you know, say 20, 40 years, whatever it was, it was a long time uh, to give Moses time to grow, to become more mature, develop patience, you know, and um, to be able to carry a heavy task that he's going to be given by God. So, um, but anyway, so uh, Moses is married to Zipporah. They have two sons, I believe. But uh, while Moses is shepherding or whatever he's doing in Midian, he encounters the burning bush. Could you talk a little bit about that, Rabbi? Yes. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned the time frame. You know, why does it take so long for, for God to speak to him? And um, I think it's in the Midrash as well. It says that you know, Moses was a shepherd and um, one of the sheep strays and he goes looking for the sheep. And he realizes that it wandered off because it was thirsty. And so he, you know, he takes it, picks it up, you know, and he tells it, oh, I didn't realize you were thirsty. I would have taken care of you, you know, you know, sort of like if you would have told me, you know, very, very kind. 
And, and Hashem says, this is one of the reasons that I chose you, because you were concerned about this lost sheep, and you are going to be the shepherd of my people, of the people of Israel. And so you see, like you said, there's a development there, right? He goes from wealth to poverty, and now his, his concern is always there, whether it was the Israelite in Egypt, uh, whether it's, it's helping the slaves um, you know, to have at least some measure of rest. Now he's a shepherd, and at this particular point, it's almost like he's, he's at a place where he's, I guess, more open you know, to say, uh, to have some kind of revelation. Um, and of course, the burning bush is interesting because it's generally considered to be a thorn bush. Um, and the rabbis ask the question, why did God reveal himself in a thorn bush? And some rabbis say, well, it's to show that even a lowly thorn bush is not devoid of Hashem's presence. You know, Hashem um, is known throughout all creation. Um, but there's, a, there's something also uh, interesting about a thorn bush. Um, if I understand correctly, the, the thorns generally point inward. So if you put your hand into the thorn bush, um, you can sort of slip it in. But if you try to get it out, you know, you're going to get caught and it can be very difficult. Yeah. And so the rabbis say that this is sort of symbolic. Hashem is going to take the children of Israel very carefully, you know, very um, in a very kind way, cognizant of the difficulties that are going to be that they're going to experience in the midst of drawing them out of Egypt. And I think it's sort of symbolic, you know, this idea. I, I think there's another element to this as well, is that Hashem is cognizant of the sufferings of Israel. And when Israel suffers, it's almost as if Hashem himself is suffering. We have a, 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 a saying that when the temple was destroyed, the Beit HaMikdash was destroyed in Jerusalem, that the Shekhinah, uh, you know, many people call it the Shekinah, sort of an Americanized, uh, you know, uh, uh, pronunciation, this, this presence of God is also exiled and it goes among the people of Israel. So there's almost a pain, there's a, there's a sorrow that God experiences him, himself. Uh, so when we suffer, he weeps. When we are in pain, Hashem understands that pain. Um, and I think that that depiction of the, of the burning bush is, is truly amazing because I think it encapsulates so many of these ideas of, of Israel's suffering, uh, the ubiquitous nature of God's presence, and, and just the, the plight that the children of Israel have experienced, uh, you know, for, for many years. Yeah, and, you know, you uh, mentioned it earlier, the interaction, the conversation that he had with uh, God at the burning bush, right? People call it the five excuses of why he's not worthy. <laughs> but, um, you know, I don't know about you, but if God ever, you know, asked me to do something, I'll say, sure, whatever, you know, no questions asked. <laughs> but, but Moses, like you said, had chutzpah and, you know, and, and, and I think it was humility too. When I, when I read, read Exodus, I think it's just... It, the humility part of it. Um, would you agree with that? It's well, I, I think I think I would say that he is arguing with God, but it's it's sort of a done in a very like a humble way, <laughs> because I think that I think Moses is a very real person. He doesn't, uh, you know. When again, again, I go back to that statement that he spoke to God. Uh, God spoke to terrified. He's unsure of himself, and yet at the same time, there's an aspect of him that doesn't have any inhibitions and being completely open with, with God. Um, and it's this contradiction, right? There's this kind of paradox because, you know, you're talking to the creator of the world um, and you're telling him like, no, no, I can't, I'm not the person, you're, you're wrong, you made a mistake. And, you know, Hashem, it begins to become like a little bit angry, you know, who gave man the mouth to speak? And 
but there's like, it's like a very real relationship. I mean, we don't live in perfect harmony, right? You know, we, we have this, when we have a spouse, uh, you know, you talk very openly and, and there's that intimacy between them and all the range of emotions are there. And I think that's unique about Moses. Like he doesn't even have these inhibitions. It's just like, I'm just going to put it out there. And Hashem tolerates that. And, and he, there's an exchange there that is very amazing. And I think that, um, you know, he finally tells Moses, no, you're going to do this. Um, and, uh, <laughs> but, it, you know, he, I think he, yeah, there's no choice. And, uh, but he realizes in that sense that um, his personality is different. I, you know, Abraham in many ways seems to be more um, pliable, more submissive. And Moses is, is said to have been the most humble man on the face of the earth. But there's also this other dimension to him, you know, and, and it's this kind of seesaw battle, I think, in, inside of him where he can object to something that he doesn't think is fair because maybe he thinks he's going to fail. But he doesn't realize that by saying that he's sort of undermining the, the power of, of God. Um, so it's just an interesting interaction that happens between them. No, I agree. And I think God set him up, right, by uh, having him raised in the Egyptian royal household so he can have the courage to be able to face the Pharaoh and, you know, and tell him off, <laughs> frankly, but um, and through Aaron, right? I mean, Aaron is his older brother, correct? And how does he play a role in all of this? Well, Aaron is, uh, as you said, he's his older brother and he becomes his spokesman. And it's interesting because uh, God tells him that Moses, that Moses will be essentially God to Pharaoh that uh, Aaron will be his prophet. So it's interesting because um, in the you know, Egyptian mythology, you know, they have a pantheon of gods. Uh, it, you know, Pharaoh is considered to be divine. And it's almost as if uh, God orchestrates this to put Moses as the representation of his power um, and sort of communicate that clearly to Pharaoh. And there's that famous incident where Pharaoh says, I don't know who is your God, you know, that I, that I should set the children of Israel free. Um, and, and I think in one of the Midrashim, it says that he sort of goes through a list of all the different deities. And he's like, I'm not seeing, you know, a catalog. I don't see this God that you're talking about. So I'm not going to let him go. Um, and it's interesting because Moses is trained in, in Egyptian lore. And it, and it, I think, quite frankly, Egyptian magic, you know, the, the rabbis ascribe to Egypt very uh, significant uh, sorcery. They say that if there were 10 parts of sorcery, nine were given to Egypt. So this is like the hub of the supernatural. Um, and Moses, having known that, is going into this environment. And I think that Hashem knows that Aaron, Aaron will be sort of the, not just the spokesman, but he'll be the support that, that uh, Moses needs because Aaron has suffered as a slave. And I think that Moses, of course, has endured a tremendous amount of pain, but there's also a, a connection there that he doesn't have. And that's that personal experience that Aaron can sort of provide. If I recall correctly, uh, Moses wasn't very uh, supported by the Israelites, you know, when he killed the Egyptian. I mean, the Israelites didn't really back him up. And maybe Aaron, several, you know, now decades later, like you said, you know, that whole relatable piece, right, with the Israelites and having gone through the experience and suffering and, and maybe to build a bridge between Moses and the Israelites. Yes, I think I think there's a question of legitimacy, right? You're of Egypt. Why should we believe you? You know, sometimes we see that in some of the movies that come out. You know, where there's this disconnect, right? You're how can you relate to us? You know, you you've lived in, in Pharaoh's home, um, and even 
when he goes and, and some of the initial miracles, um, when Pharaoh uh, doesn't respond, you know, to the initial encounter, it imposes harsher penalties on the, on the Israelites. There's one source that says that, is, that Moses actually goes back to Midian uh, for some time. And it's almost like sort of a retreat because he says, you know, the people are, are blaming me. They don't support what I'm doing. They don't believe me. But it's almost this, this sort of like stage again, you know, uh, like a false comfort that's a pharaoh to make to Shuvah, to make to, to, to do repentance. Hashem is not simply going to punish him. He's going to give him warning. He's going to give him opportunities. Um, and in many ways, this is something that, you know, the, the destruction of Egypt is going to be Pharaoh's choice. And so at every time that these, you know, what we call the makot, the, 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 uh, the plagues will come, you know, Pharaoh is given the opportunity to say, you know, you can sort of make a decision. Um, and then ultimately, of course, he, he does not. So it's, it's a process, I think, for both sides. Before we get into that, uh, part of the story there was one incident when uh moses zipporah and their sons were returning to egypt from midian and um there's a story that god tried to kill moses on his at an inn and zipporah intervened was that a mistake for moses can you just talk about that what happened what, what do you think yeah i there are many different perspectives on that i one of the ones that i like is some it's quite simple it's just the fact that he hadn't circumcised his sons and of course, the uh, Brit Milah, the covenant of circumcision, is the foundation of Jewish identity. Goes back to the time of Abraham. Uh, you know, he his household is circumcised. Uh, his sons Ishmael and Isaac are circumcised. And I think, in many ways, um, I think it was Rabbi Horowitz, if I remember correctly, he, he simply says you know, the fact that Moses would overlook this fundamental commandment is important because he's going back to Egypt and he's going to tell them that the God of their fathers has is going to liberate them, but he's missing something very basic, and that's the covenant of circumcision that identifies the people of Israel. And so Zipporah here intervenes, and it, I think it testifies to the importance of um, his wife and of, of women. This is not, you know, this is the people, right? It's, it's men and women. Zipporah is the intervening factor here. She saves his life. She is not of, of Israelite stock, uh, but she has joined the people of Israel. And so in circumcising her sons, it is, it's almost like she's conscious of the act, right, that she is participating in. And, and this is her lot. This is her future. And Zipporah in the future is, is in, in many ways a tragic figure because at least according to many uh, perspectives, because of the unique place of, of Moshe Rabbeinu, he's not like other individuals. He is an individual who encounters God on a regular basis. So eventually he will, according to most perspectives, he will separate himself from his wife. And Zipporah in many ways bears this, this consequence because her, her husband is, is not on the normal plane of human beings, right? He, uh, the Torah says he, he, he goes up to God. He goes up to the mountain. He enters into, if you will, a celestial uh, plane. Uh, he exists for 40 days, you know, 40 nights without food. He, he sees God in some form, you know, some fashion, whatever that means. Um, and so he separates himself, and and this is an incredibly strong woman because she has to bear um, a sacrifice for the sake of God's redemptive role for the people of Israel. So I think it's interesting, you know, that she plays that part, uh, and the mission continues, if you will. Yeah, it doesn't seem she was happy about doing it, you know, like she was 
kind of resentful of it, but nonetheless, it was pivotal. I think it saved Moses <laughs> from God's wrath. Um, so now let's moving forward uh, to uh, the interaction between Pharaoh, Moses, and Aaron, right? I wonder if the Pharaoh that we talk about now, when, you know, when Moses and Aaron confront him and say, you need to release the Israelites, is the same Pharaoh that let him in when he was a baby. I think, is it a different Pharaoh or do you have an opinion on that? I think the assumption is that the, it's a second Pharaoh. It's um, <clears throat> probably one of his sons. Um, I think that's generally the perspective that is uh, the key. But I mean, obviously he still would be rather aged. If, if Moses is 80 years old, um, he's not going to be a, a young man, so to speak, you know, how he's often depicted in, in many of the uh, movies and so forth. But um, it's an individual who has obviously an awareness of the Israelites and of, of their uh, extended uh, enslavement. And this is something that, of course, is, is perceived to be very valuable, of course, to, to the uh, Egyptian kingdom. And God had foreshadowed the miracles that he will give Moses, you know, through Aaron or whatever, you know, with the rod and the serpent and all of that. And can you talk a little bit about that and the foreshadowing of the 10 plagues that were to come? Well, I think that, um, I think the encounter, the initial encounter at and Moses is, uh, you know, questioning his role. How will they believe me? Um, and then he provides them with signs of, of you know, we, I think, you know, we generally translate it as leprosy, but it's sara'at. It's a supernatural skin disease um, that is, you know, we, we translate it as leprosy, but it's something of a different nature because sara'at can also afflict uh, a home. Uh, it can afflict, uh, you know, clothing and so forth. Um, and I think the reason that these things are given is that, um, they are intended to send Pharaoh a very clear signal. Now, all the plagues are not foreshadowed, but what we have here is really a, a spiritual struggle because, as I mentioned, the Egyptians had a very uh, complex pantheon. They have many gods, many deities, and the plagues themselves reflect an attack, if you will, on the different deities that are important to the Egyptian world. And, of course, they culminate um, with the death of the firstborn, but these are really striking at the power and of, and of the identity of, of the Egyptian kingdom, uh, whether it's the Nile, you know, that, of course, is a source of life. And there's a God that's associated with that or uh, frogs that are associated, I, I believe, with um, fertility. I mean, everything is a parallel and it's really a theological assault. And one of the things that happens is um, throughout this process, Hashem says, and they will know that I am the Lord. And it's almost, it's an odd aspect, but the intent is not simply to humiliate the gods of Egypt. It's to show the Egyptians that there is one creator. So even in the midst of the punishment, they are, are given the opportunity to realize that there is one God and he is the master of all of these things. Because of course, in, in uh, whether it's the Canaanites or the, uh, the Sumerians or the Babylonians, Egyptians, they have many gods that are responsible for different things. You know, they, there's a storm god, there's a Nile god, there's fertility. Um, and I think the great challenge of, of uh, the God of the Bible, uh, of the people of Israel, is that he says, no, 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 it's this, everything is under my purview, my, my control. Um, and so I'm going to show you that these gods are essentially powerless. And that's why the, the process is, is thought out. You know, the, the plagues are, 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 are meted out, or makot. Uh, the word makot in Hebrew, we use it also for lashes. Like when someone would do something that was inappropriate and the court would, would give them makot, they would give them lashes. It's, it's to teach the person a lesson. This is inappropriate. This is not to be done. 
And you can see that like on a, a national scale, he's trying to show them, you know, you think you're self-reliant, you think your gods are going to provide you this defense and, and slowly but surely uh, they're torn down. Um, and there's, there's an interesting incident that happens. Um, I think, you know, the, the incident of the, the locust, um, you know, it's very interesting because locusts can be eaten. And um, there's interesting points because every time that Pharaoh seems that he's going to budge, he sort of, you know, gains strength. And uh, there's an interesting story that says that when, when the locusts came, the Egyptians took heart because they said, oh, we can, we can take these, we can salt them. And we can, you know, we can pickle them, you know, we can serve them and we can, you know, we're saying we have food. And then it says that Hashem uh, sent uh, a wind and he drove the locust away. And it says uh, in the Midrash that even the locusts they had stored up, you know, the ones that they had put in, in uh, jars or whatever it is, you know, baskets, they were even taken away. And it was symbolic of like, you, you found hope in this plague, but I'm going to show you that that's not your salvation. That's not, you know, you're not going to have hope in that. Um, and there are other incidences when the, when the hail comes, um, it mentions that certain plants were affected, but that the barley had not, you know, uh, it was only about to bud, so it wasn't damaged. And these little incidences give Pharaoh hope. Oh, the wheat has been damaged. We don't have any wheat, but we have barley. So we can continue the resistance. And so every time Hashem said, okay, now I'm going to send the locust. And then every time there's a false hope because they continue to trust in something that um, and seeing that this God is for real, um, they, they continue to hope in these gods that, that are powerless. And I think that's sort of the amazing story. All of the, the Makot have a purpose. Um, and uh, the Egyptians themselves say that this is the finger of God. Um, and it's interesting because in, I think it's Psalm, 90, Psalm 78, it says that God at, at, the, uh, at the sea strikes them with his hand. And so when we recite the uh, Haggadah Shel Pesach, the, the Haggadah is the, the telling of the story uh, during Passover. We have, a, we have a book that we use and we, we, we recount all the different elements. Uh, there's a section that where the rabbis say, how, how do we know that God struck the sea uh, when he struck them, you know, with, uh, as, his, as he struck them in the land of Egypt? And they use this basis of Psalm 78. Well, it says the finger of God in Egypt, but at the sea, it says with his hand. So the hand has five you know, fingers. So, and then they give these explanations and other rabbis will say, no, 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 it was 10. And then they'll, they'll give you know, different scriptural references for this. And so the idea of course, is that his majesty, his power is shown at each of these different steps. And it's, it's again, it's an opportunity, it's destructive, but it's an opportunity to see the majesty and the power of God. And so every time they just sort of continue to press against that instead of saying, you know what, we're outgunned, we're out, you know, there's, this is God, this is the creator of the world, um, and we, we resist at our own peril. And I think that's sort of the amazing picture that's drawn out. There's a stream of thought that, well, God hardened Pharaoh's heart a few times, right? So Pharaoh became increasingly stubborn and wouldn't relent because God hardened his heart. And I don't know how you view that, or, or was it the Pharaoh that hardened his own heart? He just, you know, doubled down on his stubbornness. But how do you interpret that? There's a saying, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase it. It's found in the, uh, I believe it's found in the Babylonian, the Babylonian Talmud, and it says that in the way that an individual wants to walk, uh, he will be strengthened. That, you know, if a person wants to, uh, I think it says, lo, uh, 
trying to think of the particular phrase. If he comes to purify himself, he is helped. And so um, if a, an individual wants to do what is right, heaven will help him. And, an, and if an individual does wants to do what's wrong, it's not that heaven's going to help him, but it's just going to sort of stand aside and it'll it'll clear the way. And I think in the case of Pharaoh, um, he his desire was to resist. That was his desire. And so when it says that Hashem strengthened his heart, one interpretation is that God simply gave him the resources to do what he really wanted to do. Because part of him, uh, Pharaoh was sort of undergoing a, a, an inner struggle. It was a struggle to give in, but he really didn't want to do that. And so when it says that he hardened his start heart, it, it, he just strengthened him to do what he really wanted to do, which was to resist and to defy the order that had been given. Because this issue has, I think, bothered a lot of commentators. You know, the question of free will, the, the question of predestination, uh, is God forcing his hand? And I think that uh, I think that's an interesting approach because Pharaoh is ultimately the one that is defying God. And when you see the examples that I gave about the uh, the locust or the the barley is still available, it's those are the signs that give him courage to continue. And I think that you know for me it's it's Hashem says okay you know that's what you want to to look at as a particular point of uh, resistance you know go for it you know sort of like I'll help you in that because that's really what you want to do. Uh, so I don't think that God is manipulating him to to. Uh, you know, go against him, but in, inevitably it serves a, a greater purpose, and that is to show uh, God's power. So I, I, I would interpret it in that particular, you know, vein. And, and the last plague is, you know, the firstborns are killed, the Egyptian firstborns, if I'm correct, right? And uh, so I think Pharaoh's firstborn was killed, and I think that he had a momentary change of heart. He's like, okay, I'll let the Israelites go, and uh, but then he changed his mind. <laughs> And then we have the Red Sea event that everybody knows about, right? Is there anything you want to add more to that? Um, I think it's interesting that, uh, you know, the, the last plague, I think, is, of course, the definitive one because he changes his mind, as he said. But I think at that particular point, um, you know, you see the powerlessness of the gods of Egypt. Uh, Pharaoh is supposed to be divine. Uh, he, he's supposed to give life. Why can't he not bring life to his son? And I think that the distinction of the, of the plagues in the beginning, the, the Israelites suffer along with the Egyptians, but then uh, God begins to make a, a differentiation between Israel and Egypt. Um, and it's something that continues later on in, in Jewish thinking. Uh, at the end of the Sabbath, at the end of the Shabbat, we say, uh, bless is, uh, is Hashem, or bless you, O Lord, who, who distinguishes between Israel and the nations, between light and darkness, between uh, the six working days and the seventh day of rest. And there's this idea of, of differentiation that is clear. We see that at the Red Sea where Hashem separates the water. He makes a clear path um, and, you know, he, he, he makes it on dry ground. In many ways, it's a recreate, it's, it's a pigment uh, depiction, excuse me, the book of Genesis, what happens? Uh, there's, um, there's a separation between the Egyptians and the Israelites by the pillar, uh, you know, that separates them. Uh, the, the, the waters are separated, just like in the book of Genesis, when um, the firmament is separated and what appears next, it's dry ground. And it's almost as if Hashem is recreating this. He's revealing himself just as he did at creation. Now he's separated the waters and dry ground appears. And then the people emerge 
just as the people emerged in the book of Genesis, you know, Adam, of course, and then the people that come from him and, and uh, Hava or Eve. Um, and so it's a momentous event. But even seeing this, the, the, uh, the Egyptians aren't swayed, you know, they, they want to continue. Um, and and the, uh, there's a famous song, a song, it's called the Shirat Chayam, the song at the sea, it's Exodus 14. Um, and it's where uh, I think many people know it because it says he, he took the horse and the rider and he hurls them into the sea. It's almost as if even before they're in the water, Hashem take, you know, literally throws them in um, and it depicts God as a man of war. Um, and it's like a different um, a role that God plays. And it's amazing because uh, there's a part that says, Ze'eli, uh, uh, this is my God. It's like the people pointed. There's something that they could see that they could point. And there's a, uh, there's a word that comes after that. Uh, some people say, this is my God and I will build him a temple. Uh, this is my God and I will glorify him. But there was something physical there, something that, that was visible. <clears throat> and the rabbis say that the lowliest uh, maidservant saw something at the splitting of the Red Sea that not even uh, Ezekiel the prophet saw when he had his vision in the book of Ezekiel. Because if you're, if you're familiar with the book of Ezekiel, he sees this incredible revelation of wheels and the chariot and just a very otherworldly type thing, right? We, we sort of imagine people think of aliens and all kinds of things, you know, when they try to describe this, because it's, it's so bizarre, right? I mean, it's just, we can't even describe it. What is he seeing? It's so majestic. It's so different. And yet the rabbis say, even the lowliest person saw something there that was unique because this was this moment in time where God acts supernaturally. And it's not just to one individual, like it was to Ezekiel, it's to an entire people. And it happens at a place that is not in the land of Israel. It's, it's something that all the nations, if you will, could learn about. Because when the children of Israel journey into Canaan, um, you know, in the city of Jericho, they say, we heard about what happened. We heard that you were brought out. We heard about the miracles that, that transpired. And so this is like a, like a testimony, if you will, in public to show that this is not just the God of, of the Israelites. He's not just a God in Egypt. No, he, this is the God of, of all of the world. Uh, and even creation, all of creation is subject to him. Um, I would add one more thing about this is that there's an interesting, um, again, another commentary in the Midrash that says that this, the sea was not splitting. Um, and so there's one individual, I think it was Nachshon, uh, he, out of faith, out of, we would say, emunah, uh, out of trust, bitachon, he jumps into the water and the water is, you know, almost to his, you know, to his mouth. And then at that point, it, it, it parts. And it's almost as if there was a there was a need for one individual to take the leap of faith uh, and to jump in. Uh, and at that, you know, the, the water split and everybody's amazed, of course, and everybody continues. But it's interesting because we can derive so many things from these experiences about faith, trust. Um, and even, you know, Moses, when he sees the Egyptians coming, he cries out to God and God is basically like, like, why are you crying to me? Like, you know, this isn't the time for prayer. Act, you know, that's, you know split the Red Sea. And it's interesting because be resourceful. <laughs> <laughs> and it's interesting because it, it highlights this importance of action. There's a time for what we, we would call tefillah for prayer. And there's a time to act. And this is the time to act. It's not time to, to dither. Um, and it's an interesting response because it's, it's almost as if, uh, God has like a yeah, certain patience, you know, that can wear thin. And it's like, you got to do what you got to do. Um, 
and it's it's a and it's an interesting point in in the history of the people of Israel. And of course, we celebrate that to this day in in the Seder and the, and the Passover celebration. Um, and in the liturgy, it's something that we continually uh, recite in our daily prayers because it's it's foundational to the people of Israel. It recounts the stories of what God did for our, our forefathers. Real quick, I mean, if we can just. Uh... Rewind just real quick answer to this question. Um, how how did Moses uh, garner support from the Israelites before? Was it before the ten plagues? Like, how did the Israelites say, "Okay, we believe you. You are the prophet." I think it's something that gra uh, gradually happens. Of course, they lose heart after initial, the initial encounter, but I think that once they begin to see the plagues and what he says will happen, happen. Um, I think it's hard in the beginning because, of course, they're suffering under the same plagues. It's not until, I think, the third plague or something like that, there's a, there's a difference. Uh, so just imagine, I'm going to tell you something bad's going to happen. There are people like, oh, great. So just <laughs> tell us some good news, right? Um, uh, but once the differentiation is made, I think that's, you know, when the people of Israel say, oh, my gosh, this is, this is true. You know, this is the prophet. And now, you know, the God of our forefathers is actually answering us. And we're going to see, you know, deliverance. So I think it's a, it's a process. It's not something that comes immediately. Um, and I think that there's this, you know, kind of uh, rapport that has to develop, you know, between Moses and uh, the children of Israel. And it's something that takes time. And of course, there's challenges throughout the wilderness that, that last for 40 years. So it's not something that is necessarily resolved. It's something that continues to evolve. Yeah, call me gullible after 10 plagues and parting of the Red Sea. I believe you. <laughs> we weren't there. Who are we? So they're in the wilderness for about three days now. You know, um, they're looking for water and for food. You know, I'm sure it's very harsh. And they start complaining. And, you know, poor Moses has to deal with it. So can, can you, uh, Rabbi, tell us, um, why did the... Israelites start, you know, complaining and and saying things like, oh, they wish they can go back to Egypt and be rather be slaves than be free. I mean, can you tell us a little bit more about that? I think that um, in many ways they are still slaves in a certain way. Um, you know, they obviously are no longer under Pharaoh, uh, but I think that they have a certain mentality that continues to walk with them for quite some time where they've seen all these things transpire, but there's, there's always sort of a second guessing, you know, like a, a, a doubt maybe that continues. Um, and I think it's just something maybe about the human spirit. You know, we can say, oh, you know, if I had been there, I wouldn't have doubted. But I think once you find yourselves in, the, in these difficult positions, you don't have water, you don't have food. Um, it's like any point in our life when we struggle, there's a point of doubt. Um, you lose a loved one, you have a tragedy, sickness or something, even the most religious people begin to sort of question, you know, I, I didn't get uh, what I had prayed for. I, you know, we had this in my own family. My my wife lost uh, this very beautiful niece, a very, you know, beautiful, beautiful niece, uh, just a baby. And it was a very tragic circumstance. And um, I saw my wife praying intently, you know, uh, reciting Psalms, having networks of people uh, in different Jewish congregations pray, different synagogues. And uh, it was just emotionally shattering for her because the, the baby didn't survive. And it was this, you know, I, I poured my heart into this. I know I said, I, I, I agree. Um, and, um, you know, I think it's just the human frailty. We, we see God's deliverance. We see a miracle. Um, but the, human, the Israelites are, 
you know, we are the Israelites, you know, um, you know, we have the same elements of, of frailty. And I think that, you know, we often say, how could they do that? But I think, I think we probably would have done it ourselves. And I think that uh, it's just, I think it's just human nature. So uh, Moses uh, goes up to Mount Sinai and he has, he's so fortunate and blessed, you know, he uh, hangs out with God. Can you talk a little bit more about that? And also what's happening at the bottom of the mountain now? Yeah, so the people get to, uh, there's one thing I should mention is that there's always a, um, a mixed multitude that is amidst the people of Israel. Um, people that came out of Egypt that were not Israelites that, hey, the, the doors are open, we're going to leave, we're going to join this people. Uh, sometimes the, the things that happen are attributed to these individuals, the mixed multitude. Um, and uh, I, I don't think we can take away culpability um, Israelites, but there also seems to be an element where there are, they're present there at Sinai. Um, and uh, we, we call this event Matan Torah, the giving of the Torah. And it's a unique event because in, in, in classical Judaism, we consider it to be the highest form of revelation that the world has ever experienced. Why? Because we have 600,000 Jewish men, we have children, we have women, you know, according to the numbers, several million people. And they not only... Um, they hear the voice of God. They see fire and smoke and thunder. They hear blast. Um, you know, according to one, uh, they see the words. According, if you look at the Hebrew text, they actually can see God is speaking. They can see the words. How do you see words, right? That doesn't make any sense. There's something that is supernatural that happens, and it happens in the midst of all of the people of Israel. Um, and there are different interpretations on this. It appears that God speaks the Ten Commandments to take it. You know, Moses, you, you go up and you talk to, to God. Thank you very much. You know, we, we've heard the Ten Commandments. The rest of the Torah, you go up to, to, to Sinai uh, because we can't bear, you know, the voice of God. Um, and in, in the Midrash, we have these uh, depictions of God coming down with 10,000s of angels. It's a, you know, he's with his entourage. And the Torah is not simply communicated in, in, in Hebrew, it's communicated in 70 languages. Because 70, if you look at the book of Genesis, is the number of the nations that were thought to exist at that time. There's 70 descendants. And the idea here is that God is not simply revealing himself to Israel. He's giving all the nations an opportunity to join in the worship of the one true God. So it's not exclusive to the people of Israel. He's making a covenant with, with, with our ancestors, but he's also saying to the world, you're welcome you know, to join in. Um, and this is where the, the 70 languages are important. Um, you know, Hashem reveals himself to Moses in a, a unique way. Um, he reveals the Torah to him. He reveals the, uh, the Mishkan, the, the tabernacle, all the, but he also reveals things that are, that seem to be very mundane, um, you know, uh, tort law about how, if you have an injury, if you, if you, all these things that, you know, we don't, we don't see them as spiritual, but they're the basis for a justly society. Uh, or a just society. Um, and, and so it's interesting because there's not simply, um, you know, I'm the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And, and this is key because I think in, in non-Jewish renderings of the Ten Commandments, uh, it usually starts off with, um, I am the Lord, uh, you, you shall have no other gods before me or something like that, right? But in the, in the Jewish text, we always start, uh, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Um, and in the Hebrew, the word asher, 
which uh, people translate um, uh, usually as uh, uh, who, who brought you, who. Uh, we can also translate that as because. So I am your God because I did this for you. So everything that God states from that point on is, is basically uh, in the terms of the covenant. He's giving the preamble. I did this for you. And now I am making you my people. And there's this this uh, this exchange, you know. There's this covenant. There's a marriage contract, if you will, that is being enacted, you know, between God and 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 the people of Israel. This these are His people, um, and so all the elements that are needed for a just society are revealed uh, at Sinai. Uh, and Moses, of course, is going to convey this to the people of Israel. Um, and uh, at the same time, we don't know if Moses takes a little bit too long. Maybe you know the the people were counting incorrectly. But something happens where they their expectations are not met. They fear that Moses is not going to return. And of course, we have the incident of the golden calf. Now, it's interesting because in uh, if we look at the Canaanites, for example, the Canaanites uh, had bulls uh, that would pull a chariot and their gods, because they had a very complex pantheon as well, that would be like the chariot of their god. So the god would ride in the chariot and the bulls are, you know, like the horses, if you will. Um, it's quite possible. I've always thought that what happens is that the Israelites are not really worshiping the golden calf. What they want is a representation of the divine chariot. You know, they have a, a bull, a calf, and in their minds, it's it's sort of, it's unacceptable because they're not supposed to make an image, but they're they're wanting something physical that will sort of, you know, paint that picture of the God, of God will be, uh, drawn, you know, in this divine chariot. Um, and we see this later when the, the the kingdom of Israel is divided into two, uh, the kingdom of Judah, the kingdom of Israel, two bulls in different places. And that becomes like the center of cultic worship in, in the north. So it's quite possible that that was the case. Other people may have believed that, yes, this is a, a you know, a pesel, a, a, an idol that we're going to uh, you know, endow with, with power, but there's something there that they lose hope and out of panic or out of intent, they focus in on this as, you know, the, the representation of, of what brought them out of Egypt. And of course, Moses learns of this. Uh, God tells them they've already strayed. Moses goes and of course he, he shatters the tablets. Um, and then of course, you know, some people are, are, are killed as a consequence. And then people are made to, um, to melt the golden idol and to drink of the bitter waters. I mean, it's something very uh, poignant, very you know, uh, you know, telling in terms of what happens. Um, but even in the midst of this, you know, Hash uh, Moses intercedes with God, with Hashem, for the people of Israel. Um, and it, again, it testifies to Moses's character that he's willing to forego the offer of God making another people right through him. Um, that he intercedes on their behalf, and he does it several times throughout the, the, the desert. Um, and it's just amazing because it shows that, again, as I, I mentioned in the beginning, that Moses is willing to lose his own destiny um, for the sake of the people that God has brought out. And, and of course, he tells them, you know, if, if you kill them now, they're going to say you were powerless. You know, you, 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 were, you had to change a heart. You couldn't bring them out, you know, to the land of Canaan. Um, and so and it's interesting that he appeals to God in that sense of, of a very, like a human way. Um, and of God, of course, you know, sort of acquiesces and says, fine, you know. Um, and then we have, of course, right after that, it, it's an interesting parallel because 
when the golden calf is being erected or, or going to be built or smelt, whatever the appropriate term is, the people give freely of their gold. You know, they take off their earrings, they give freely. After this incident, we have the, the Mishkan, the tabernacle. And it says that the people gave freely so much that uh, Betzalel and uh, his assistant, uh, I think it's Holiab, they have to say, it's enough. You know, we can't take any more. And uh, there was a very famous rabbi, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who, who died last year. Uh, he was a former uh, chief rabbi of, of Great Britain. He said, what kind of a people is this? You know, if you build them, you know, you want to build the golden calf? Sure, you know, we'll give to that. And then they say, if you want to build the Mishkan, you know, they give freely. There's something about the people of Israel that throughout time, um, there has been this generosity. Now, sometimes it might not have been in the right places, but there's a generosity that is reflective of the people of Israel. And something that Jonathan Sachs mentioned was that throughout Jewish communities, there has always been a charity fund. There's always been a, a resource in even the smallest communities that helps those in need. And he goes, this is something interesting that uh, is characteristic. And we find that in, in the Torah itself, you know, where the people are willing to construct this. Um, it, it's sort of an amazing uh, tale. And it's, an, it's a paradox, right, of, of the people's uh, uh, inclinations, you know, to give. No, thanks for pointing that out. Yeah, I didn't realize that. And so thank you for that. Um, on the golden calf um, piece, you know, what was Aaron's role in all of that? You know, what do you think? It, it, I mean, there was some complicity there, right? Yeah, well, the rabbis often, I think they're perplexed in many ways by the fact that, of course, Aaron has later made uh, the Kohen uh, a priest, the high priest, the Kohen Gagadol. Um, and so the rabbis often, I think, are trying to look for other possibilities in the text. And one of the stories that's that's given uh, is that it was sort of a stalling tactic. You know, like if I tell the people to give their gold, they won't do it because nobody wants to part with their gold. And then they're like, they give freely. So he's sort of like, oh, oh you know, I have to think of it. <laughs> so then he's like, okay, well, we'll fashion something. And then Moses will come and then, you know, it'll, it'll sort of calm the, you know, calm the people down. Uh, but it doesn't happen. And so it's almost as if Moses, uh, Aaron is trying to stall. Uh, I think, they, yeah, there is a measure of complicity, but I think it's not something that was necessarily his intent. I think he is uh, faced with the reality of the masses, you know, telling him, you know, you, you basically have to do this. Uh, but in, 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 interestingly, it's not held against him. It's not something that we hear that, you know, was mentioned later. Um, he's honored as, as the high priest. And the reason that he's not allowed to go into the land of Israel is for a different reason. It has nothing to do with the golden calf. And so I think this is why the rabbis sort of question, was he really wanting to do this or was he compelled to do this by the people? Um, and I think that's sort of, you know, they're looking for the motivation because it doesn't seem to fit in. I think it's, I think it's possible. Um, you know, the Midrashim are not necessarily meant to be interpreted literally, but they give us possibilities about why the text says something and then it, it doesn't, you know, resolve it, you know, and, and maybe the way that we think it should be resolved. And I think it's, it's a possibility. I think two of his sons died um, shortly thereafter, you know, but I don't know if that was related or not, but yeah. But, but I think, like you said, you know, as you know better than I do, God looks at a person's intentions and motivations, right? Whereas people judge from the outer. And, I, and there might be something to that, that God knew his intentions were not to um, undermine him. It's interesting that you mentioned his two sons, Nadav and Avihu. He has two other sons, but um, they were 
priests, right? And they uh, they go into the tabernacle and they offer incense that is not, uh, or ketorah uh, in, in Hebrew, they offer this, this incense that has not been authorized. And, and often people look at that as a negative thing. And, and it is because, it, you know, they were supposed to follow a particular order. But it's interesting because it says that I will be sanctified by those that are near to me um, when, you know, when they're, when they're, uh, they're consumed by fire. But in many ways, it's part of their religious zeal. This is the way that it's interpreted is that, yes, the, the order was not correct, but they were consumed with this kind of holy fire, if you will. Um, and it was out of this love that they had for God. So they're not necessarily seen in a negative way. Um, it's not the appropriate thing, because if you draw too close to God without the prescribed form, there's a danger there because of God's presence. Uh, but it's interesting that you mentioned that because they're they're seen as as sadikim, they're seen as righteous individuals. Uh, so sometimes the punishment is simply a consequence of the closeness that you have to God. You know, the fact that they're there in this very special place, and so it's a sort of an interesting perspective on that. So, um, and you know, as a side note, digress a little bit you know i think you know moses took on so much responsibility because he's such a good humble person you know he's dealing with all these hundreds of thousands of israelites and their issues he's like a judge and jury he's you know arbitrating you know mediating disagreements and um i think god i think jethro intervened and and god even said okay designate 70 people delegate <laughs> you moses you got bigger things to do and it's interesting that Jethro is the one that suggests it because he is not an Israelite. And I think it testifies to the fact that Moses is willing, he's humble enough to accept the guidance of a non-Israelite who has recognized that the God of Israel is the true God. Because he, he says, you know, you've told me all these things. Now I know that, you know, this is the real God. Uh, it, it sort of testifies to Jethro's own religious journey, uh, his willingness, his desire to know the truth. Uh, and then it shows that it's amazing because Moses is willing to accept his wisdom and that wisdom from a non-Jew, from a non-Israelite is incorporated into the Torah itself. And I think it goes back to this idea that the Torah was meant not simply for the people of Israel. It's a covenant, but it's it's the beauty of it is intended to be made known to the world. Um, and I think that, as I mentioned, the, the parasha, the section that deals with the giving of the Torah is named after Jethro. So it's just an, it's an amazing testament to that. And so this is when they wander for 40 years, correct? Yes. In the wilderness at this point. Okay. And then we come to the point in the story where Moses now sends 12 men from each, one from each tribe for uh, God's order into Canaan, right? Uh, or just to see what's going on before they go in. Um, what happened there? Well, the individuals report what they've seen. And of course, from their perspective, the majority of them, 10, uh, they're frightened by what they see. They see fortified cities. They see, uh, they, they refer to the Anakim. Uh, uh, they refer to them as giants, uh, the, the descendants of the Rephaim and the Nephilim, et cetera. Um, and they feel that they're, again, that they're unworthy. They're not capable of taking the land. This is after having fought many battles. Uh, of course, the, the miracles of the Exodus, uh, the splitting of the Red Sea, and they basically stir fear in the midst of the people and again, it's it's sort of this doubt about whether God is going to be capable of, of turning the land over to them. Uh, and there's only two people that, of course, stand up to that, and that's Joshua and, and Kalev. Um, and of course, God is is really uh, well. The, the 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 40 years are a consequence of this. We should say we should correct that and say, yeah. Um, 
so the 40 years are a consequence of the people becoming uh, frightened and doubting that God will, Hashem says, well, you know, this generation is not going to be worthy of inheriting the land of promise. It's going to be the children. Um, and it's amazing because in many ways, it sort of testifies to many things that happen in life, right? We may not necessarily see it, but our children are often the ones to, to benefit from the struggles that the parents and the grandparents undergo. Um, but amazingly, of course, Joshua and Caleb are the two individuals because the, the, the punishment is for those that are 20 and older, if I remember correctly. Uh, Joshua and Caleb live uh, and they live these very you know, old, uh, old ages and they, they go into the land and Caleb, even as an old man, is fighting and conquering and, uh, and is given a possession in the land of Israel. And of course, Joshua is, is uh, the leader. Uh, a general, and he fights many battles to to conquer many of the principal cities. So it's an amazing uh, testament to the fortitude, the physical fortitude of these individuals that they not only have the strong faith, but almost as a recompense, they're given like a strong body, right? That uh, they're able to continue that struggle uh, until their mission is completed. Then we come to the right before that, before they enter Canaan, you know, we had that pivotal moment, right? With Moses and Aaron. Uh, when they disobeyed God, more or less, right, with the rock and the water. Um, I think that was probably, you know, a defining mistake for Moses, more or less. Can we talk about that a little bit more, Rabbi? What happened there? Well, there had been, there had been an incident before that uh, Moses had struck a rock and had given water. And, of course, water was a key issue throughout the, the time in the desert. Uh, it happens again, as you noted, and um, this time God commands Moses to speak to the rock. And uh, Moses strikes it twice. Uh, and, and Moses and Aaron are, are very upset. They tell the people, do we have the power to, to give you water? Um, and, and I think in many ways, it seems tragic because, of course, they're not, they're not allowed to enter into the land of Canaan. Um, one of the things that happens in, in Deuteronomy, what we call Devarim, there's a portion called Va'et Hanan, I implored. And Moses is recounting all the tales of, you know, all the story of the people of Israel. And he talks about how I implored God to allow me to enter in. And, and the rabbis say that he kept praying and praying like hundreds of times. And he, if he had prayed one more time, Hashem would have broken down and said, okay, you know, you, you get to go in. But Hashem says enough, you know, don't, you don't push me because I'm going to, you know, um, but, but he at least lets him see the land. You know, it's like this, at least you get to see the land. But I think it, it has to do with the, uh, primacy or the uh, the uniqueness of, of Moses and Aaron, where they have a communion with God that is unlike any other. I mean, Aaron to a lesser extent, but Moses, again, speaks to God as, as a man speaks to his friend. But, you know, God says, you know, to the prophets, I speak through a vision, through a dream, but not so to my friend Moses. And, and, and I think the reality is that that intimacy has a higher standard. Um, and it's just sort of the package deal, you know, you, he knows what God has ex demanded. And unfortunately, he, he's a human being. But uh, some of the rabbis say he shouldn't have said, do we have the power, you know, sort of imparting Moses and Aaron as, as if they had some kind of magical power, um, or just losing, you know, becoming angry, it just shows the importance of not becoming angry. That's, that's something that's key. Of course, I think all of us would have, you know, fallen into that. But I think it just testifies to the fact that he is not on the same sphere, the same plane that we are. He's an individual that, you know, has entered into the heavenly realm in some form, 
he sees God in some form. You know, this is a big issue of what is he not exactly seeing, but he encounters God in a way that none of us have. Um, and as a as commensurate with that, he he's held to a different standard. And I think in many ways also it's almost as if this new chapter has to start without him. Uh, you know, Joshua is the one who will be the next generation. It's like Moses can only lead the people to the land. And that's, that's the end of the story. Um, they had to sort of see some kind of transition. They had to see the next chapter. Um, and I think it's just sort of the, you know, it's, it's the, it's the ending of that story. It's the ending of that chapter. The children will now be the ones to inherit what the fathers did not. Um, and there has to be a different leader. Um, and I think that maybe the characteristics of what were needed were different, you know, for the land of Canaan, you know, Joshua seems to be much more, um, he's a military man, you know, I mean, obviously Moses had that training, but Moses is like the shepherd or, you know, he's caring for the flock. Joshua is more, you know, I'm a general, you know, this is what I have to do. It had happened or not. Um, it's just like the story has to stop there, you know, in some form or fashion. No, it's almost like, you know, um, David not building the temple. God said, no, you're not going to build it. It's going to be your son. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? There has to be a transition, like you said. Um, God, I'm just, you know, when I listen to these stories and these lessons, it really warms my heart, you know, because God is compassionate. Like you said, Moses, he did give Moses the opportunity to at least see, right, from afar even, but to see what the land, promised land looked like from Mount Nebo. And we have, you know, we have a tradition. That I think it exists in other cultures as well you know Moses is said to have died by a, a kiss from God you know God kisses them and and that's just it's just a, a calm peace and he just enters he just transitions into the heavenly realm Olam Haba to the world to come and it's just that's really where he was you know part of you know he had sort of tasted of that right he enters into to Sinai the, the pillar of cloud comes into the tent it's like that's really where he is I mean he doesn't that's that's one of the reasons he separates from his wife. He doesn't have the same uh, needs or the same uh, physical uh, interactions that people have. I mean, he he's comfortable, if you will, dealing with the divine. And I think in that sense, it's almost as if uh, it's time for Moses to to be in the heavenly court where he uh, belongs. You know, so I think it's just an amazing aspect. Yeah, and God buried him too. No, no, no. I, I think it's it's a beautiful it's a beautiful story. I. I uh, you know, my, my grandfather, blessed memory, died uh, in 2010, and he died calmly. He just died in his sleep, and somebody said it's the divine kiss. You know, God kissed him, just like Moshe Rabbeinu, and you have that sense of there's a certain truth to that, you know, because you see other people that unfortunately have more uh, trauma, you know, as they're passing, and yet uh, my grandfather was a very religious individual, and, and so it's you could see that kind of peace, and you can you can imagine Moses. We don't know where he's buried. He's not... Um, his, his tomb is not to be glorified, it's not to be the focal point, but his impact is, you know, throughout Jewish history. Uh, there, was, there was not, again, a prophet like unto Moses, and yet, uh, you know, this, the Messianic figure, the Mashiach, is, is going to be like a prophet like Moses, you know, so there's, there's a uniqueness there, um, and Moses is always like this individual that is the, the model, you know, of, of Jewish behavior, so he, he has a destiny that, um, an inheritance or heritage that has continued throughout the millennia and has impacted, you know, Christians and Muslims and other, you know, people of faith. So his sons, is there a lineage with Gershom and Elijah? There is a lineage. 
Yeah, and it's interesting because I think if you look in the book of Chronicles, if I remember correctly, there's an interesting case where I think it's his grandson, if I remember correctly, actually becomes uh, a priest, but it's not a priest uh, in the normal sense. He becomes like a priest of one of the idols of uh, the Canaanites. Uh, yeah, because it, at that time, you know, in the book of Judges, for example, I think it's in the book of Judges, you can find one of the priests mentioned, but also chron uh, Chronicles and Judges are important. The, the, one of the challenges that the Israelites have is uh, syncretism. They're always, you know, falling prey to the combination of the worship of the Baalim, the, you know, Baal, as people refer to him, or the Ashtarot, the Asherah. Uh, and, and the Canaanites have many gods. In fact, they have one god, El, that is very similar to El Shaddai, Elohim, Eloach, you know, what we would call him. Um, and so there's, there's sort of like a fine line, where do, where do the boundaries end, you know, between the Canaanites and the Israelites? And it's always a sore spot, just as the, the Torah tells us, they're going to be a, a sore spot for you, a, a thorn in your side. And the, the religious beliefs are often very similar, and then there's a lot of differences. Um, and so syncretism is a challenge that we see like in the Battle of Elijah, and the prophets of uh, Baal, Baal, and uh, yeah, exactly, yeah. So this is always like a, a challenge. It's not really until after the exile that where that stops. You know, people really learn the lesson, and you don't see idolatry as an issue that the Israelites or the Jews struggle with after the destruction of the first temple. Uh, but it's interesting that his grandson, if I remember correctly, um, becomes this because it, it's in many ways it's the challenge of religious leadership, and this is something that I've seen that. Um, Sometimes individuals are so consumed with their communities that they often lose um, influence on their children or their grandchildren. Um, and I've seen this, you know, in people of other faith. Um, you know, it's just they become, in fact, my little boy is coming into the room right now. That's <laughs> fine. All right. And, um, and um, it's just, a, I think it's a, <laughs> it's a challenge of religious leadership that if you are concerned that, um, if you don't um, concern yourself with your family, then your children can lose the disconnect with God. Um, and I think many ways, you know, just on a personal level, I have been very grateful. I have a full-time job uh, as an engineer and uh, I have uh, two small communities that I'm the rabbi of as, as the volunteer rabbi. Um, and in many ways, part of me would want to be like a full-time rabbi, but at the same time, I think it keeps me grounded. I, I'm not going to speak for other people, but I know what it is to have a job. I have to get up. I have to, you know, I, I, I say the prayers. I, I do the same things that other people do, but I, I don't say it from a position that's detached from reality. Uh, does that make sense? In the, in, in the, what I mean is that, yeah, I have to do the same things that everybody else in my community does. And I think it gives me an appreciation for their struggles. And I think that it's, it's not a critique of Mo Moses because he was just on a different plane, but it shows that sometimes when when a person is so engrossed in the spiritual and this is something of course that god had ordained um there can be sort of a distancing that happens you know with with his wife or, or with his uh, grandchildren or children so it's just sort of that odd situations that happen at, at times so yeah no i i think you just got to live in this world too that god created right and then address your personal family life there has to be a balance some way, but God always comes first. <laughs>
Rabbi, Rabbi, it's been a pleasure and an honor to speak with you, and I've learned a lot. And no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, right, whom the Lord knew face to face. So um, it's been a blessing to speak with you, and thank you for everything that you do uh, for us and for humanity. Um, Rabbi, if uh, people want to, if listeners want to contact you or want to get access to your books, want to buy your books or your works, how can they do that? Well, they can do uh, they can do several things. One is um, they can go to Amazon, and if they type in my full name, that very long name, um, they'll come up with a ton of books. Uh, there's about thirty five different uh, texts that I've written. Some of them are short. Some of them are are quite long um, on a number of different topics. Uh, they can also they can also go to modern hyphen scribe. So uh, M O D E R N dash scribe dot com. That's my personal website. Um, and then on Facebook, I have a fan page and um, I'm always giving out free things. You know, if there's a sale, I'll highlight that. You can download like a free Kindle book or things of that nature. Um, and then you can contact me. Um, I don't know if it's appropriate to give an email address or not, but, uh, you know, they can contact me through the Modern Scribe. Is it on your website or is it? Uh, they can contact me there or I, or I can give them my personal email address. I'm perfectly fine with that as well. Um, it's R as in Robert, A as in Apple, M as in Mary, B as in boy, A as in Apple, M as in Mary, 44 at gmail.com. It's rombom44 at gmail.com. Rombom, interestingly enough, is uh, Rabbi Moses Ben Maimon, who was a very famous Spanish rabbi. And there was a saying that from Moses to Moses, there was no one like Moses. And because Moses, uh, my... My mom uh, was such a great uh, scholar, uh, you know, rabbi, uh, just, you know, tremendous impact. So they would always say, well, there was no one like Moses, but, you know, this guy came close, you know. And so I, as a young man, I found that email address and I'm like, I'm going to get that email address because I, I really admired him. Uh, and just a funny story. I had one of my professors when I was studying, uh, he asked my, my, my email address and I said, it's Rambam44. Uh, and he said, I don't know who's more arrogant. You or the 43 other people who took the, the email address before you. And so it's sort of been a running joke from that time on, but I've had it, you know, for decades. So um, if they want to contact me, ask me a question, I'm, I'm more than happy uh, to answer that. I, I enjoy the, you know, the interaction. And I get emails from, of course, from Jews, but, you know, from Christians, other people. I always enjoy the interaction and anything I can, I can provide, you know, to them. So, so thank you again for the opportunity. It's, it, I, I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Rabbi. Everyone, that was Rabbi Dr. Juan Marcos Bejarano Gutierrez. And for our listeners, thank you for listening to Mystics and Skeptics. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the show on Amazon Music, Spotify, Patreon, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for tuning in and stay in peace, everyone.